Welcome to Bible Greek VPod's Intermediate Greek Program. This is Lesson 19. In this lesson, you will learn the present tense. Then we will look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Well, we finally made it to the verb tenses. This, of course, is one of the most important aspects of the phrase or the clause in that tense expresses the action in both time and manner. The word tense comes from the Latin tempus, meaning a portion of time, and the aspect of time of action is important, but also is the manner of action. The, the manner of action is also defined as kind of action. For Greek, time is understood to be past, present, or future. But Greek also offers a more precise element with respect to temporal distinction called a kind of action. The kind of action expressing the progress of the action. Progress of action can be continuous, complete, or undefined. For continuous action, the Greek, for the most part, uses the present tense with the indicative. However, continuous action can also be expressed in past time by use of the imperfect tense. The other aspect of kind of action is completed action. Action is expressed as complete is from the viewpoint of present time, and that's found in the perfect tense. Action, however, expressed as complete from the viewpoint of past time is found in the Greek tense, the pluperfect. We'll talk a little bit more about that when we get there. And finally, the kind of action defined as undefined action comes from the aorist tense, and the aorist expresses the action as just occurring with no time reference. Well, today we're going to look at the present tense, and the present tense in Greek can express a past, a present, or a future time. Dr. Young identifies the three times aspects of the present tense as follows. The present indicative has a past reference in John 1.29. Notice what it says. On the next day he saw, that's the present tense, he saw, but it sounds like a past, doesn't it? On the next day, he saw Jesus coming to him. Then there is the present reference in Acts 16, verse 18. I commanded you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. That is a present reference. Then we have the future reference in Luke 19, 8. Where Zacchaeus told the Lord, I will give to the poor. I will give is the future aspect of a present tense. And a timeless reference in John chapter 3, verse 18. The one who believes in him will never be judged. See, that has a timeless aspect to it. Will never be judged throughout all time. Now let's take a look at the uses of the present tense. First, we have the progressive present. 
The progressive present is the most common and nearest to the main idea of the present tense. The tense expresses action or a state of progress. The present indicative speaks of present time and can be interpreted as occurring right now or continuous action. An example is found in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say walk, there's the present tense, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. This has the sense, if you right now walk in the Spirit, then you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Another example is found in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4. And these things we are right now writing to you. There it is. We are right now writing to you. Most versions just translate, we are writing to you. So that your joy may be full. The next usage is called the iterative present. The iterative present uses the present tense to express the action as a reoccurrence at successive intervals or repeated action. The action may be habitual or a custom and can be interpreted as always, keep on, or normally, as would be the normal custom. An example is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 31. I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. There's the iterative present. I die daily. The idea there is repeated action. I die daily. Another example is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17. Pray without ceasing. That has the meaning of a regular prayer life, a repeated prayer life. Another usage of the present is called the historical present. The historical present is used when the author wants to present a past event to the reader in a very vivid way. The historical present is sometimes referred to as the dramatic present due to its dramatic or vivid effect. Again, Dr. Young says, since the aorist is the normal sense form in narrative, the historical present is striking and lends prominence to the opening of a scene or to other places where the author wishes to draw the attention of the reader. Dr. Young goes on to illustrate this by saying Mark uses the historical present in Mark 1.40 to highlight the opening of a new scene. So Mark says there in chapter 1 verse 40, And a leper came to him opening the scene in a dramatic way. Another example is found in Mark, chapter 14, verse 17. And when it was evening, he came to the twelve. He expresses that as a historic present. He came to the twelve. And then we open the scene of that discussion that they have. Another usage of the present is called the futuristic present. The futuristic present is used when the author wants to present an event that has not yet occurred 
and the reader is to understand that the event is certain to take place and in fact is in progress. This usage expresses the theological doctrine of the sovereignty of God and His sovereign control over all. An example is found in Matthew chapter 26, verse 2. You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up. There is the futuristic present. It's really a present tense. Will be delivered up to be crucified has a very huge theological usage. Another example is found in John chapter 14, verse 3. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back. There it is, the future present. I will come back and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. The Hebrew has an equivalent to a futuristic present and it's called a prophetic perfect, a completed act describing a future event. Well, the Greek kind of places this as a futuristic present. Another usage of the present is called the nomic present. The nomic present is used when the author wants to make a general statement of fact in a timeless fashion. An example is found in Matthew 7:17. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. There is the nomic present. Every good tree bears a general statement of fact in a timeless fashion. Bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears, there's the present, bears bad fruit. Another example is found in John chapter 3, verse 8. The wind blows, there's the nomic present, blows. The wind blows where it wishes. It just is a general statement of fact, a timeless fashion. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes. There it is again, where it comes from, or where it goes. There it is again, three times in this verse. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. That is a, a timeless act. Next, we have the tendental present. The tendental present is used when the author wishes to show the action that is proposed or attempted, though it is not actually taking place. An example is found in John 10, 32. For which of these works do you stone me? See, the action is not taking place in reality, but it is proposed or attempted. For which of these works do you stone me? Another example is found in Galatians chapter 5, verse 4. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. A tendential present. Action is not actually taking place, but proposed or attempted. You who attempt to be justified by the law. Action doesn't take place, but attempted. Finally, there is the static present. 
The static present is used when the author wants to represent a condition which is to be forever taken as fact. It's a static present. An example is found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. All things remain as they were from the beginning of creation. See, the condition is to be taken as a condition of forever taking place, forever a fact. And we have lots of examples of that in the New Testament. Now let's move to our text for the day. I hope you have gone to the website and you've gotten our detailed analysis for 1 John chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. And let's go through that. In the first part of chapter 4, love is related to the knowledge of God and our born-again walk with God. Now, John relates love to faith and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. John defines faith without even mentioning the word. The statement, no one has seen God, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world, is equivalent to the definition of faith in Hebrews. What does Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 say? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So John gives us that in this section. The apostle says we have visible evidence of the indwelling presence of God by the love we show fellow believers. Our love, one for another, serves as a testimony to the world that we are followers of Jesus Christ. The love that God has for us is seen by his sacrificial example and the promise of the Holy Spirit. Let's get into this first verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 12. No one has ever looked upon God, is the first phrase. The holiness of God is protected and is all-important to God, so much so that a specific type of angel, the cherubim, are designed specifically to guard the holiness of God. They were placed at the gate of the Garden of Eden, restricting sinful man from entering. Two gold representations of cherubim, were placed on opposite ends and facing each other on the mercy seat, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. The description of the creature suggests a complete 360-degree protection around God. Sin is not allowed in the presence of God, which is why Jesus was sent into the world to pay the price for sin. Disobedience is sin and is an offense to God. So it is that no one has ever beheld God. The accusative, Theon, God, is placed at the head of the verse in order to emphasize him in the argument. It could be translated, God, no one has ever looked upon. The masculine adjective, udes, no one, means here not anyone from mankind has seen God. Angels before the fall of Satan all had access to heaven, but one-third of them fell with Satan and were cast out of heaven because they sinned. Not only is the term no one exclusive, but the time aspect is also exclusive as the adverb popote, ever, at any time is used. No one has ever theomai, 
the perfect middle or passive deponent verb indicative beheld or looked upon God. The perfect verb means completed action and enforces the exclusive words no one and ever. Dr. Barnes says the idea is he has never indeed been seen by mortal eyes. We are not then to expect to become acquainted with what he is in that way. But there is a method by which we may be assured that we have a true knowledge of him, and that is by evidence that we love one another and by the presence of his spirit in our hearts. We cannot become acquainted with him by sight, but we may by love. Isn't that a great quote by Dr. Barnes? God is invisible. He is described as non-material and without a physical form. But even as Scripture prohibits mankind from making a physical likeness of him, it does describe him using anthropomorphic terms. He has hands, for example, feet, a face, ears, eyes, a mouth, fingers, arms, shoulders, and a back. But he also is described performing human physical actions. As he sits on his throne, he stands, walks, rides, rests, sleeps, shoots arrows, and reaches down from heaven. God does not have physical eyes or fingers. The anthropomorphic literary technique brings the unknowable attributes and actions of God to mankind in a way we can understand. These descriptions of him are merely used to help us understand God in a personal way. He is a personal God who is knowable, not some impersonal force. Jesus came in the flesh to explain the Father to mankind, and the revelation of God to mankind reveals that He is a loving God who cares and provides for us each moment. Each breath we take is taken because God gives us each breath, and eternal life is knowing Him. But it is a fact that Christ, the eternal Son of God, came in the flesh. Very God came and took on the form of man, the last Adam. So it is that we proclaim Christ is the image of the invisible God. But He is the image in a more perfect way than man, who, by the way, was created in the image of God. For Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, which means Christ is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. And hence, anyone who has seen him directly and his works has seen God indirectly. The idea is not a physical representation, but the immaterial representation. The concept of God's work in both word and deed. The Greek concept of theomai, perfect middle passive deponent indicative, to behold or look upon, means to view attentively, or to view and contemplate, and signifies to view or observe with the purpose of interpreting the object viewed. So it is used of public shows. Dr. Wiest puts it this way, 
deity in its essence no one has ever beheld with the present result that no one has the capacity of beholding him. Dr. Wiest is saying that since the definite article is missing from the word God, then God in essence or nature is to be understood. Jesus was born without a sin nature, never sinned, was faithful and strong in both character and righteousness. When he clears the temple, for example, he demonstrates both his righteous demands and his love for his own. Move down to the next phrase. If we love one another, God dwells in us. The statement concerning no one has seen God moves from a negative personal visible sight by the eye to a positive sense of knowing God because of his indwelling presence. The conditional phrase starts with the particle ain, if, and is combined with the aorist subjunctive of agapeo, present active subjunctive, we might love to form a third class condition. The third class condition is the condition of certainty. Based on the condition and means, if we love one another, and we do, then God dwells in us. Notice that the object of the phrase, alelon, one another, is placed before the subject, theos, with the definite article, God, thus emphasizing the reciprocal nature of the action concerning love. Loving one another is an evidence of the indwelling presence. Understanding the love of God is important in our relationship with one another. The love of God involves His commands, His Word, and the outworking of His Word involves our obedience as it relates to love. But the indwelling presence produces a conviction of the conscience and hence an outward response in the form of deeds. We worship in spirit and truth, word and deed. The doctrine of the indwelling of God is that both Jesus and the Holy Spirit indwell the believer. It is because of the indwelling presence of God that we can now love one another in a very real supernatural way. The present verb minnow, to remain, abide, or dwell, means is dwelling and continues to dwell. This dwelling of God is positionally in us. A Christian is said to be positionally in Christ because he is in us. This is the mystery that was not spoken of in the Old Testament, but is now revealed, that Christ dwells in us. But the main point here is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the new capability to listen to God, and the union we have with God because the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence. In John's Gospel, Jesus explains that he gave the command to love one another, using his own love as a model. Then Jesus tells them that their mutual love one for another would be a testimony to everyone that they were his followers. This teaching is now made clear by John in this letter as he explains the relationship of the death of Christ to the love principle and the supernatural gift of love by the Spirit. Move down to the next phrase. 
And the love of him has been made perfect and is in us. The great principle of the love of God has been revealed to us in its perfect state. And so it is that when we first believed, his love was comprehended all the way down to our core. His love was comprehended not just in our minds, but also in our hearts. God's love is a specific love, as is made clear by the use of the definite article with the subject agape, signifying what manner of love this is that we now possess our new life. His love indwells us because he indwells us. This is not some abstract love, some soppy love, but true love since its source is from God as the genitive personal pronoun atos of him reflects a genitive of source. This love involves the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but it also involves the giving of the Holy Spirit and the continuous work and guidance of the Spirit. The perfect passive participle of teleu, notice it's feminine, to make perfect, complete, or bring to an end is normally translated she or it has been made complete. But since the main verb is the present tense of imi, to be, the action in its result is really continuous. Since the nature of the action comes from the main verb, the present passive of the participle speaks of the completeness of its effect. That is, the death of Christ on the cross as a propitiation for our sins is complete, as well as the indwelling presence. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. This love, then, is threefold. It has been given to us, and there was nothing we did or do in order to receive it. It is a gift of God as Jesus laid down his life for us. Secondly, it is present because God changed us by transforming both our heart and mind to receive the truth. And the truth is present in us. Finally, love is present in us because the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in us reflects the love of God so that we can be called children of God. Move down to verse 13. The first phrase, By this we continue to know that we remain in him and he in us. The apostle continues his encouragement by stating how it is that we can know for certain that we possess the supernatural love that God gives. The expression in tuto, in this, or better, by this, as the demonstrative pronoun hutas is used with the preposition in, is instrumental, meaning by means of this message or by means of this spirit. The neuter demonstrative either is a generic message or more likely the neuter spirit. It is the assurance of the spirit that we know and accept the indwelling presence of God in us. Knowledge is in the present tense of ginosko, to know or understand, meaning we know this fact and continue to know it. The simple active voice means the subject, we, directly performs or 
experiences, in this case, the action of the verb, meaning we actively know this and experience the indwelling presence. The hati is translated that, though some translate because, thus stressing the reason we have this knowledge is because in atu menamen, in him we remain. The present verb meno, to abide or remain, means we right now remain and continue to remain in God. Likewise, atas in hemin, he in us, the present verb might better be distributed here as and he remains in us. Or simply using the natural reading, he is in us. The abiding is an intransitive verb and means to continue in a state or place in which one now is. Move down to the next phrase. Because he has given to us from his spirit. The hati, because, provides the reason. It is because he has given to us from his spirit. The thing given is placed at the head of the phrase in order to emphasize the thing given is ek, out of, or from, the ablative expressing origin, as it is out from his numa, the spirit. Notice the definite articles is placed with the spirit. And it makes the spirit specific. But the English does not sound proper using the definite article, so it is omitted in the English. The verb didomai is a perfect active indicative, to give, is in the perfect tense, meaning the giving from the Spirit to us is completed in the past and will continue to the present in us. It is important to identify what has been given by the Spirit. The theological significance of the creator-creature distinction must be kept intact in that what is given are the spiritual gifts of faith, hope, and love. We are not God and will fail in applying these gifts of the Spirit. That is why we are commanded to love. That is why it is not our righteousness, but Christ's righteousness that covers our sins. Is it not incredible that it is, after all, a work of God that we believe in the first place? That's what John chapter 6, verse 29 says. It is a work of God that we believe. And we come to understand that He is with us all the days of our life. He is actively working in us through the good times and the bad in order to bring spiritual growth in our daily walk, to build our faith and character because God's love has been poured out in us. Finally, does this statement support the permanent indwelling of the Spirit? It does in that the verb tense gives every indication that it, the, the very thing given from the Spirit, is permanent and a completed act. Likewise, does this statement support eternal security? It does so long as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit defines a child of God, and it does. And if that presence is permanent, then yes, security is also established and perfected. Both are complete. However, it is also true that we can grieve the Holy Spirit, 
So the command is given to love one another and to abide in Him. We know we are of God because our union with God reflects a relationship with Him. And what follows is a relationship with others in the church. Move down to verse 14. Verses 14 and 15 talk about the testimony we have of the Son. And we, we have beheld and we testify that the Father has sent the Son, the Savior of the world. The Apostle John continues his argument concerning the proof of the indwelling presence of God's Spirit in us by use of the word chi. And we, we know this, that is God's presence, His perfected love in us, (laughs) and our abiding in Him, because we have beheld the Son, God in the flesh, and it serves as the core of our testimony. You might say, we have seen the big picture. We have seen the light, the truth. We understand the basic concept of the love relationship concerning the death of Christ for the world. The emphatic usage of we highlights John's argument that everyone in the church is included in this beholding of his son. The perfect tense of theomai, to behold or look upon or to view, continues the sense of the action as complete and lasting. It is important to recognize the completed act of the work of God, yet it is a continuous act that we Materio, we uh, we are a witness or we testify that our Lord Jesus Christ came in the flesh to die as a substitute for us. And he was buried and resurrected for our justification. The completed act of our seeing the truth speaks of our common understanding as a group that we were enlightened sometime in the past and its effects continue up to the point of writing. God saved those in that church in the past, and they completely saw and indeed see the picture. The haughty conjunction, that, is used to introduce a subordinate clause, specifying the important thing concerning the Son is that He is the Savior of the world. The important aspect the Apostle wants to highlight is that the Father had sent the Son. The verb, apostello, a perfect active indicative, to order one to go to a place or to send away, has the meaning that the sending occurred in the past and that it is a completed act, and that this is our present testimony. He sent His Son, really the Son, as the definite article points to the fact that he is the unique one, and this same one is the object of the phrase, so also is the Savior, the Soter, of the cosmos. The person of Christ as Savior is pronounced by the angel to the shepherds in the fields at his birth, but comes from the prophecy of Isaiah, spoken some 700 years before his birth. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward and even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So it is that John clarifies the work of the Son in his first coming by the statement, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Move down to verse 15. Whosoever might confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and I stopped it short, but I'll continue with the next phrase, God remains in him and he in God. So the first phrase, the relative pronoun is nominative, hos, who, and is masculine, and might better be translated which man might confess. The particle aim together with the aorist verb homolegao, aorist active subjunctive, to say the same thing as another, to confess, concede, or profess, forms an indefinite relative clause, meaning that anyone who confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, then God remains in him and he in God. The timeless aorist is used in order to complete the idea of the relative indefinite clause. It is a fact for anyone and for all time and means that if a person confesses at any point in time, then the Holy Spirit will indwell the believer forever. The statement of fact is introduced with the hati conjunction, hati Iesus estin ha wios tu theu, that Jesus is the Son of God. What does it mean to be the Son of God? The meaning of Son of God is that Jesus, as the Son, has all the qualities of the Father and that there are no others who have the attributes of the Father. It means that the Son is a legal representative of the Father on earth as he came in the flesh to die in the place of mankind. So it is that Jesus is called both the Son of God and the Son of Man. He alone is able to represent both God and man in one body. The use of huius, the Son is metaphorical in nature, not meaning one born as a physical son, but meaning one that functions in every way, including a legal sense as the Father in his absence. So it is that Jesus establishes his legal authority to be a propitiation for the sin of mankind in his death, because there is none righteous, no, not one, except the God-man, Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh. Look at the next phrase. God remains in him and he in God. The highlight of the indefinite relative clause 
is the object clause. The statement of fact concerning the indwelling presence of God in the one that confesses. He came in the flesh and is the Savior of the world. This statement of fact speaks of the great union we have with God. For the most part, Paul speaks of our union with Christ from a Western mindset by the words in Christ, a technical term expressing our position legally in Christ and means we are saved and experience our union with Christ in our daily walk living by faith. On the other hand, John uses the Eastern concept of mutual abiding, which includes our position in Christ and our experiencing new life as abiding in Christ. We are identified with Christ because we have been baptized with the Holy Spirit, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit in the believer is consistent with the perfect tenses used in this section. Not only do we have a testimony confessing that Jesus Christ came in the flesh and is the unique Son of God, but that we possess the Spirit of God enabling us to see the truth and be guided through all truth, resulting in an outpouring of love one for another. The contrast between our position in Christ is emphasized in this section by the verb tenses. Our indwelling is past tense and perfected. We have been saved, but our daily walk involves our union with God as the present tense of minnow remains or abides in Him, expresses our continuous state in God and God in Him, in us. Move down to verse 16. And we have known and have believed the love that God has with us. The argument continues in verse 16 with the subject of love relating to the position we have in God. The perfected knowledge is emphatic as a personal pronoun, ego. We is used with the first person plural verb, ginosko. It's a perfect active indicative, to know or understand. Exhorting the reader in joining John as they together understand the love that God has toward them. It is not only knowledge that is perfected, but belief as pistuo, perfect active indicative, first person plural, we have believed, means they have been fully persuaded that they are the object of God's love. Love is the object of this phrase and is also closely linked to the relative pronoun tain agapain, Ain, the love that. Notice the verbs for our knowledge and belief are in the perfect tense. And both are in the indicative mood. Stressing our complete knowledge is a reality to us. But the love that God has for us is in the present tense. Expressing his continuous love for us. Did you get that? Knowledge complete, love is present. The definite article with agape, the love, specifies a specific love that only God can possess. And he extends towards us, and in fact is given from the Holy Spirit. This is a very unique love. 
This is not love that the world understands. This is a God-given love. The relative pronoun hoss, which or that, is not needed, but is used to stress the concept of the love of God. And the love of God is with us. The preposition in, with, expresses God's love is one of association with us. Move down to the final phrase. God is love, and the one who remains in the love remains in God and God in him. The final phrase of the verse is one of the most wonderful statements of fact heard today. God is love. It is a common mistake to associate the God of the Old Testament with the God of wrath and the God of the New Testament with the God of love. For God is unchangeable, and both his love and his wrath are found in both testaments consistently. The love that God gives is a characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit and is characterized by Paul as suffers long and is kind, does not envy, does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Notice the character of God reflects the character of love as both are in the nominative case. That is, one cannot separate the two, just as one cannot separate wrath from God. Both love and wrath are characteristic of God and reflect His righteous character as He provides a way whereby those following the world system have a way to avoid the wrath to come and the second death by believing and trusting that He sent His Son to pay the price as a substitution on our behalf. The doctrine in theology called the universal or general call is where God proclaims whosoever will believe in me will be saved. The call is genuine and universal in scope. Whosoever. That's anybody. The problem is no one will accept the call. The message is foolishness to the world. God has to move in man with what is called the effectuous call. The special call that is effective in the believer that is called of God. This person will come to accept Christ as his or her personal Savior because God's call is effective in them. The statement, Ha Theos Agape Estin, places God alongside love and uses the state of being verb, Ami, to be, meaning God exists in a state of being, loving. Furthermore, the one that abides in God's love is assured the reciprocal relationship of union with Christ. The participle minnow, present active participle, nominative masculine singular with a definite article, to remain, abide, or dwell, means this person is known as a person who abides in love. The preposition in is locative, meaning this person remains positionally in the love of God, but the preposition can also be instrumental, meaning this person remains by means of the love of God. 
So it is that the chain of prepositions that follows forms the great statement of union with God in to theo mena kai ha theos in atu. In God he remains and God in him. John repeats the statement of union from the previous verse, emphasizing the relationship that love has with the abiding presence. The historical expression, God with us, speaks of the incarnation and the love of God for his creation. But God with us also speaks of his eternal presence with us as we experience eternal life in our daily walk and sometimes, as Satan attacks the church, we need his love evermore. Our command is to love one another. Brethren, love one another. There is a problem in that church that John is ministering to in Ephesus. They have a problem with love. That's why John is bringing up this love. And it is a command. Love one another. We have to be commanded to love one another. In fact, when we get to the book of Revelation... What is the problem with the church in Ephesus? They lost their first love. What a story this is. Well, go translate the next section of Scripture and come back for the next lesson. Mm-hmm.